We have seen these people on TV who claim to have the true anointing. And so you send to them your letters and they'll put their hands over your letters and they'll pray over those letters because they have the anointing. And God is saying, listen, the barricade has been eliminated. This is Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we moved into chapter 5 this week, and we've been looking at the first two verses. In this passage, the Apostle Paul reminds us that as believers in Christ, we no longer have to go through any intermediaries to have direct communion with God. And Paul explains that it is by the once and for all sacrifice of Christ that we have, as verse 2 tells us, obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, when you read this, that we have an introduction, that we have access in which we stand, that's very, very important. And you don't want to miss the importance of this new introduction, or as the old King James and the ESV translates, access. I like introduction just a little bit better than access. Because while both are true and it's hard to use a single English word to give the full nuance of the original, while both are true, access may imply in some people's mind in today's English that it's something that we determine. An introduction is someone brings you, someone brings you into the place of a king. And this was a a radical, radical thought for people who lived in the first century. This was breaking news in the first century because for centuries, people didn't have any kind of access to God. As you read the scripture, it seems like they're always excluded. They're always kept away from God. Let me read to you a few verses from the Exodus. Exodus, so the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and tell them they have two days to get ready. They must set themselves apart as holy, have them wash their clothes and be ready by the day after tomorrow. On that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Then he said, listen, mark off a boundary around the mountain for the people and tell them not to go to the mountain or even touch it. Those who touch the mountain must be put to death. Now, nobody could just say, well, I'm just going to go up and see God. No, God underscored over and over and over again all the way through the Scriptures that He is holy. But Paul says here in Romans 5, we have obtained our introduction, and by this grace we stand. Now, as the centuries went on and the worship of God got more and more formalized, all you could see was barriers. Here's a picture of the temple. This gentleman took 30 years in building this model of the temple. He says he's still not finished. He's 78 years old, says he has 33,000 hours into it, he's logged his time. It's a perfect two-scale representation of the original Herodian temple that would have been uh, around in Christ's day. Remember, there are different temples in different periods. The Solomonic temple, the original one, was utterly destroyed and taken apart by Nebuchadnezzar. It was eventually rebuilt and refurbished. Some would call this the second temple. Some would call it the third because Herodias did a total facelift on it. Uh, But in one sense, since it never closed after they rebuilt the Solomonic temple, some in most just call it the second temple. So just keep that in mind as you read about 
the temples in the Scripture. There's going to be another temple called the Tribulation Temple. That's going to be built. I take it it probably won't even start until after the church is raptured, but it will be built and finished by the midpoint of the Great Tribulation period. But when you look at a temple like this, all you see is division. There was the outer courtyard, the very father's courtyard. That's called the court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles were not allowed to go anywhere beyond that. They, as uh, God-fearers, could approach God, but that's as far as they could get because, again, God was distinguishing Israel out of all the nations of the world because it's through the Jew, Jesus said, that we have salvation. In fact, they have dug up some signs that were on that outer wall, two to be specific. Let me read it to you. They're in the British Museum. They're in Greek because that's the language of the Gentile, not Hebrew. And this is what it said. No foreigner is to go beyond this point. Anyone who does has himself to blame for his death, which follows. Only Jewish people could pass beyond that outer wall. Now go back to the next picture of the temple. You see that there's another wall, and that's the court of the women and the courtyard of the men. And again, uh, you had to be a Jewish woman or a Jewish man to enter in that, but that's as far as you could go. And then there's another wall, and that's where the Jewish priests went. And then there is still another wall through which they went through golden doors, and you had to be of the tribe of Levi to go through that. And then there was another door, another place that led you into the holy place, and then a curtain behind that that led you into the holy of holies. And there only one man could go once a year for a very brief period of time. Now let Scripture illuminate Scripture. Hold your finger here. Turn to Hebrews 10. I think this will be a blessing to you. Hebrews 10. If you were here 12 years ago, I preached through the book of Hebrews. It's one of the more challenging books in all of the New Testament, but it's a rich book. It's very meaty, very challenging, but very enriching for those who will pursue its truth. Hebrews 10, and look, if you will, at verse 19. He says, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus. He's saying, if Christ is your Savior, a term that he has used here to define brethren, God gives you confidence to enter into his presence. Not because you've justified yourself by what you have done, but because of the mercy of God. Look at verse 20. Again, he's underscored it's through the blood of Jesus. And in verse 20, he adds, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us, how? Through the veil that is his flesh. Now, have you ever pondered why the veil in the temple, that great curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and the original tabernacle, it was 10 by 10 by 10, that structure in the Solomonic temple, and later on in the Herodian temple, it was 20 by 20 by 20. There was this curtain where behind the curtain, God came, and you couldn't enter. But why does God make a comparison between that veil, that curtain, and the flesh of the Lord Jesus? Now understand, on the other side of the curtain was the most sacred spot on planet Earth. Because it was in that place where God Almighty, His Shekinah glory would come and His presence would fill the place. And it was in that place there was an ark. Uh, you can see it was a box-like structure, three objects in it. 
the second set of Ten Commandments because the first were destroyed because of the rebellious people that rejected God's standard. There's the jar of manna, which was a rejection of God's provision. They said, we hate this stuff. There was a supernatural stick that budded and had flowers and almonds on it that was the rod of Aaron when they rejected God's leadership. And all three symbols were put in the ark and on the top was the mercy or the propitiatory seat. We've talked about the doctrine of propitiation, remember? And once a year, the high priest would go and he would take the blood and he would put it on the top. That's an actual visual, what it would look like, pretty much to scale, what it would be. At least the box is. And there was cherubim over the box. And cherubim in the Bible are different from seraphim. They guard the holiness of God. But when the blood was put on the mercy seat and God looked down, he didn't see his holy standards that had been violated. All he saw was the blood that covered over the sin of the people. Now, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It was just symbolic of what God ultimately was going to do. It says, And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When did that happen? You remember when Jesus was on the cross. He said, Tetelestai, it's finished, it's done. The payment has been made. And then from top to bottom, it was a very thick curtain. Josephus says there was so much material, it was two feet thick. And again, there was no door. You had to kind of go up underneath it, the high priest. But God tore it, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, God from heaven rent the curtain. And God was sending a signal that man was now welcomed into his presence it was a marvelous, marvelous truth. And so there's a new, a living way through his flesh. And so the flesh of the Lord Jesus was like a veil. Had the veil in the temple not been torn, God would have been still saying, keep out, you're not welcomed. But the fact that God tore it because he lacerated the flesh of the Lord Jesus, God is saying, welcome. Listen, one of the greatest tragedies would have been for the Lord Jesus to come and model a sinless life and to have gone to heaven without having died. Unless his flesh had been lacerated because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We would have no access to God because God's justice would not have been satisfied. And so we have confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. Now let me show you a tabernacle. This is an actual two-scale tabernacle. When we were in Israel, we visited this very spot. It had been up about six months, and we didn't even know it was on our tour, and we were blessed to see it. There it is there. That's the picture of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Unlike the temple, which was a permanent structure, this was a very portable structure. And they carted it with them for 40 years in the wilderness. And this is one of the places where they actually made camp. The Bible teaches here next to the Solomonic uh, copper mines. But just picture for yourself some man who comes up and he sees the Jewish people there in the wilderness and he says, hey, I'd like to go in there. He says, well, you can only go in there if you're Jewish. Are you a Jew? No, I'm a Moabite. Then you can't go in. Well, what would be necessary for me to be able to go in there? Well, the only way you could go in there is if somehow you could be born again all over again and be born not as a Moabite, but born as a Jew. 
Then you might get in. He said, well, I'll tell you one thing. If I could get in there, I would go to that different kind of place that all those people are looking at. I'd like to be able to go into that place. I'd like to be able to go behind that curtain. Well, right behind that curtain is the holy place. And not any Jew can go in there. Just someone from the tribe of Levi can go in there. You would have to be not only a Jew, you would have to be a Levite. Well, I'll tell you what, if I were a Levite, I'd go to that room and I understand there's another curtain behind that curtain. See that curtain there? There's another curtain. And on the other side of that curtain is the Holy of Holies. Oh, if I were a Levite, I'd go behind that curtain. Oh, you wouldn't be able to go behind that curtain if you were a Levite. You had to be a certain kind of Levite. You had to be the high priest of Israel, and there's only one high priest. Well, I'll tell you what, if I were the high priest of Israel, I'd go behind that curtain. I'd spend a lot of time there. Oh, no, 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 no. The high priest can only go in there one day out of the whole year, and then only for a few moments, for a few minutes. But listen to what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. He's saying we have confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus Christ was the last lamb, the final lamb, the one pictured in the Old Testament. We have confidence to come. And so it was finished. And God now is inviting men to have access to God. Peter emphasizes this truth in a number of different ways. That because we have access, now all of us are priests, Jew and Gentile alike. Listen to what Peter said. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This was breaking news that anyone through the blood of Jesus could continually, habitually come and stand in this introduction. When I'm in Eastern Europe, it's covered over by the Orthodox Church. And you go in even to the Orthodox Church and there's a wall and behind that wall the Orthodox priests alone can go and it's like a mystery. People wonder what's behind there and you would never go behind there as an Orthodox person. And then they have this whole system where, you know, through the Orthodox priests and through all of their patron saints, you offer your prayers. Catholic Church does the same thing, but they put a little more emphasis on Mary. Unless we be too smug as Protestants, we have seen these people on TV who claim to have the true anointing. And so you send to them your letters, and they'll put their hands over your letters, and they'll pray over those letters because they have the anointing. And God is saying, listen, the barricade has been eliminated. Luther, Swingley, Melanchthon, all the reformers were underscoring the truth of the priesthood of the believer, that we are all believer priests. And when someone tells you that there's some kind of special believer, that they have some kind of special access to God, you are typically listening to a false prophet. There's one mediator between God and man. It's Christ Jesus. And you have direct access through the Lord Jesus. So look at 5.2. We have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we extend. We have acceptance. We have access. Third and finally, we can rejoice because we have assurance. Look at verse 2. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
We have grace in which we stand. Once in my life, I had the privilege to go into the Oval Office, and it was a big deal to get in the Oval Office. But there's a section in that White House, they call it the residence of the President of the United States. And I'm telling you, if you ever get into the residence, you're a special, special person. But can you imagine going to the residence and bringing your suitcases? Hey, Mr. President, thanks for inviting me. I'm here to stay. Can you imagine going into Buckingham Palace and bringing your suitcases? No, you're going to go there and you're not going to be there long. You're going to be there just for a few minutes. Listen, Paul is saying, we have an introduction into this grace in which we stand. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. And we stand in this grace. He's talking here about the believers standing. In Romans 14, he will say, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And he'll use this word stand, same word, both positionally and practically. And it's important as you read the New Testament, is this a positional truth or is this a practical truth? He will say, now I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you stand. In 2 Corinthians, he will say, for in your faith you are standing firm. In Ephesians 6, he'll say, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And here, positionally, he says, through whom we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we stand. And he uses a Greek tense that speaks of a fixed state that can never, ever, ever, ever change. You have been moved into a new state, out of a state of condemnation into a state of grace. And don't confuse your relationship with God with your fellowship with God, your union with God versus your communion with God, your positional standing versus your practical standing. When I've been saved, God saves me forever, and I stand in a fixed state of the grace of God. Now, listen, my communion, my fellowship, my intimacy with God is very fluid, and I can change it by choices that I make, but this new standing I have is permanent, and it's a standing with a view towards making you like Christ. And so he goes on by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Now, when you see the word hope in the New Testament, remember, it's very different from our English word hope. We will say, well, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope my suit still fits. That speaks of something that is very fluid and changing. But in the New Testament, hope has a lot more concrete and steel in it. It's speaking of something that is permanent. And he is saying, listen, I am certain that God is going to do something in the future in my life. And so he says, I exult in hope of the glory of God. Now we need to ask, what is the glory of God? If you were with us in Romans 3, we saw the glory of God is the character of God. And God is committed, Paul says, to your development. There's coming a time when he will complete it. As the rest of this chapter will indicate, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am right now as I grow up being saved from the power of sin and someday in the future from the very presence of sin. To put it simply, God has committed himself to making you into his own likeness. That he wants to make in your practice what he has declared you positionally. And some of you are here this morning and you say, I hate the way that I am. I will never be different. That's not true. That's what the devil would have you to believe. If you have been saved, God wants to make you different. You say, well, God used to use me, and I feel like he has shelved me. 
Or maybe he has, just like he, he shelved Moses for a period of 40 years to prepare him for greater ministry. But listen, God is committed to making you like his son if he has saved you. In 1607, our forefathers, when they came to Jamestown, they started, they were excited, they were motivated, but there came to a point where they had lost hope. They uh, had a lot of death. They had two severe fires. So they decided to get back in the ships and to sail back to England. They were giving up. And as they were leaving the harbor, a ship came from France, led by a fellow by the name of Delaware, and so the title of our state. And Delaware came with fresh recruits and new animals and fresh supplies, and, and the people turned around and they had a sense of hope that things were going to be different and they had a revival. Some of you need a revival of spiritual hope this morning in your hearts. And Paul is saying, listen, I rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that God is making me like his son. He's just giving it to us here in kernel form, but you need to be here for six, seven, and eight to, to learn how he will make it a reality in your life. I mean, think of Tertius. Remember him from our introductory sermon? He's the fellow who's Paul's amanuensis. That's a fancy word. He's the one who's taking down the dictation. And Paul is saying, okay, Tertius, Write this down. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exalt, we, we, we shout with joy in hope of the glory of God. I can bet Tertius say, wait a minute, Paul, that, that's magnificent. We have a new standing, we have access, and God is committed to making us like Christ. They probably had a praise service before they went on to the next verse. That's something that was breaking news in the first century, and it should be breaking news in this century. Now, how can we apply this passage this morning? Let me suggest a few applications as I close. Number one, if you are now in a state of grace, in other words, if you've been saved, then identify with that state and enjoy it. Identify with it and enjoy it. When was the last time you just rejoiced over your salvation? Enjoy it, rejoice, exult in this state of grace. You say, well, what is it like to live in a state of grace? Well, maybe I could illustrate it geographically. I live in the state of South Carolina. We have uh, our own constitution and laws. We, we have our own state bird and state dance and state song. And we have our own state barbecue and all this different stuff. And if you live in this state, you pay taxes to this state, and you're a part of this state. And if you've moved here from another state, you shouldn't lament the state you came from. You should enjoy living in this state. That might even be rooting for somebody's ball team. Now, I went to Boston College. That was my alma mater. And on one occasion, I was in Death Valley <laughs> watching Boston College play Clemson, where my daughter went to school. And I learned very quickly, I better root for Clemson if my... If I valued my life. Now, my daughter went to Clemson. Two of my sons went to USC, and those boys are still asking where we went wrong in our parenting. But don't miss the point. If God has saved you, he has moved you from a state of condemnation into a state of grace. 
And you should cheer for those who, who come into this state of grace. You should give to those places that expand the state of grace. You should love nothing more than to be zealous for the glory of God if you are a member of this state. Identify with it. Rejoice in it. Exult in it. Secondly, be quick to welcome newcomers into the state of grace. Be quick to welcome others. Now, when we come to the 10th chapter, Paul is going to expand that idea. But let me just parenthetically speak here. Because the word introduction or access has a couple of different nuances in the Greek New Testament. And sometimes the challenge of a translator is to go from the original language into the receptor language with a single word. And it's difficult to do because in Greek, sometimes it's like a multifaceted diamond and there are different aspects to it. So like in 2 Timothy 2, the King James says, study and show yourself approved. The NAS says, be diligent to show yourself approved. What is it? It's not either or, it's both and. He's talking about a study, but not just any kind of study, a diligent study. Now elsewhere, this word introduction or access is used, even outside of the Bible, of a ship that could come safely into a harbor to find rest from the storm, to find shelter. And people ought to be able to come to a local assembly and know that it is a place, a state of grace where they can find shelter where their past is not thrown up at them because they are now out of the state of darkness into a state of light. And we must never forget that we are to show grace to others if we live in this state of grace, even if they don't deserve it. That's the nature of grace. None of us deserved it. And so... We are to show grace. When we come to the applicational section, he's going to underscore that truth. We show grace to each other. Why? Because we have received grace. He's going to argue we show mercy to each other. Why? Because we've received mercy. We show kindness to others. Why? Because we've received kindness. We show honor to other people. Why? Because God has honored us through the merits of Christ's blood. Listen, when... Some of us came into the state of grace, we were pretty rough. But the truth is, in God's eyes, we're all very rough. If you've sinned in one point of the law, it's like you broke every point of the law. So we need to be welcoming people into the state of grace. And if we've been saved, we are to come into a fellowship that believes in the grace of God. We call it membership. But before you can come in and experience the benefits of grace, you have to receive the grace of God. And there's no other way for you to receive it than through Jesus Christ. So I invite you today to come to Christ. Let's stand for prayer. Now, our Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture that you gave through the pen of the Apostle Paul. We bow humbly this morning in your presence, thanking you that while we deserve nothing but wrath, you not only saved us, but we can come with confidence, with boldness, and that we stand in this grace, eternally secure. Oh, Father, thank you for this new position of favor, for the opportunity, unlike no old covenant saint, to worship you in intimacy. And may we be looking this week to welcome people into the kingdom of God. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.
To listen again to today's message from Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, entitled Rejoicing in God, use the Search the Scriptures app or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Or if you prefer a CD or DVD copy, call us at 877-787-7478 and request program ROM21. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll begin a look at how tribulation in our lives can lead to spiritual maturity. Join us then as we search the scriptures.